Hey guys, this is And The Writer Is, and I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of writers and artists over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life and the industry, politics, composition, whatever. If you ask me, songwriters are some of the most worldly and intelligent people I've ever come across. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. Now I'm co-producing this with my friend Joe London, who was nominated for a Grammy earlier this year for Best Country Song. He makes us sound like angels. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, go to Spotify and look up our playlist, And The Writer Is, or go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Oh, and if you enjoy this podcast, please rate us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast listening site is. We really appreciate that effort. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This week's guest is Ricky Reed. He was nominated for Producer of the Year at the Grammys. He's probably nominated because he's so diverse and so good in so many different genres. I mean, the guy has defined artist careers, whether it's Megan Trainer or whether it's Fanagram or whether it's 21 Pilots or whether it's Pitbull or, or Jason Derulo. I mean, the list goes on and on. And yet he still always seems to be one of the most humble and enjoyable producers you can spend a day with. Now, Ricky's also been an artist and he recently released a single, Joan of Arc. I recommend you check that out. He is also the head of Nice Life Recording Company, which is a record company under Atlantic. And he talks about Casey Robison in this interview, who's the senior vice president of A&R at Big Deal Music, who's also a producer of this podcast. But most importantly, the day after we did this interview, Ricky Reed welcomed his daughter into the world. So congratulations to Laura and Ricky on starting your family. And without further ado, here is... And the writer is. Welcome to And the Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's guest is a real privilege for me as I have known him for almost a decade. His success is multifold. Not only is he one of the most compelling frontmen I have ever seen, but he's widely regarded as one of the best producers in music. He was even nominated for this year's Grammys for Producer of the Year. From the Bay Area, this hit songwriter has orchestrated number one songs, publishes hit songwriters, and develops hit artists. This guy was at my wedding, and I had the pleasure of attending his. And the writer is my dear friend, Eric Frederick, a.k.a. Ricky Reed of Wallpaper. Yeah. Yay. Good morning. Good afternoon. It's cool when people listen to it that it's not live, so they're listening to it like while they're working out, which is weird. That's what I was thinking. But I drink coffee 24 hours a day, so... Doesn't it affect your sleep or no? It does. I mean, um, but I, I don't know. I love... There's nothing better to me than like a 4 p.m. espresso. Wow, like a yeah, yeah. late afternoon when you're really hitting it. Yeah. And like something 
great is happening in the studio and sunset. I don't know. Do you get like a single espresso? Double. You get a double. Yeah. Yesterday I showed up to a session and, and they asked for a Starbucks, if I want a Starbucks, and the session started at five. Ooh. And and uh, and I was like, I don't know. I don't know. You know what? Let's try it. And they got me an iced vanilla latte, Ooh. which was like sugar on caffeine. So yeah. at least when I met them, they actually thought at that point that I had energy because like my <laughs> my normal demeanor is not exactly like bouncing off the walls. But. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a that's a sucker punch. So okay, so uh for full disclosure, mm-hmm. you were the first person that we interviewed. Right. You know, and it's now been a year and a half and rather than releasing that, there's so much has happened that it makes sense to redo it. But that doesn't mean that I'm not going to start by asking if you remember the first time that I found out about you. Which I don't know if you remember. <laughs> Wait, found out about me? Yeah. Before we worked together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, tell me. That it was, uh, I found an email from November 30th, 2009, with this email that said, this is a super talented artist from San Francisco. If you have anyone looking for a remix track or top line work, please hit him up. Also, he's in LA next week if you want to meet him. He's unpublished right now. He just did some top line work for Missy and Florida for us a few weeks ago. Co-wrote a killer track for the dance party and his remix of Das Racist, Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, <laughs> has been making the rounds online. Making the rounds. And I found my response to that, which was, um, I think it was like, does he want to send me tracks? <laughs> That's fair. I think that was That's pretty fair. much it. Yeah. But can you explain, like, how how do you get um, an A and R person in Los Angeles to hear your music from San Francisco, and why am I getting this email? That's a great question. Um, I mean, at that point, Wallpaper had sort of hit a ceiling in the Bay Area. Like, we were a local band, and we were kind of playing the biggest venues you can play as a local band, and we were on the covers of like you know the regional uh, sort of weekly, etc you know, magazines uh-huh. and stuff. And I was still broke. I was literally washing dishes. Where? Um, at the Gap Corporate Headquarters Cafeteria in San Francisco. Wow. Yeah. It was brutal. It was like 10-hour days. You just get there in the morning and there's like, you know, How old 1,500 you? dishes. Oh, 20... I don't know, six, seven. So you went to you went to school at Berkeley, right? The Berkeley up north, UC Berkeley, yeah. right? And um, you go from there, and you're in another band. This is before Wallpaper, right? Before right. Wallpaper, you're in another band. Yes. What is that band? Facing New York, right? So that's a sort of a prog hard rock band that I'm in through college. Wallpaper starts as a way to sort of blow off steam uh, from that band. So I'm. You know, I'm I'm in like wrapping up Berkeley. I had taken some time off too, which is why I finished undergrad in my mid twenties. Uh-huh. Majored in music. And wallpaper, what did you do when you took time off? Sorry to keep going backwards. I, I'm like inching no, backwards no. every time you're going forward. <laughs> <laughs> but um uh it was I mean, I basically thought that my band from even before then was was gonna get a record deal. Like I had a high school band uh that was your high school nameless. band. Caught you on that one. What was it? <laughs> They're called Locale AM. 
Ah, it's a very yeah. Please don't Google it. That's very nineties, man. <laughs> That's it like, was in the nineties. You know I mean? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We yeah, like yeah. we were like a local sor- for sure. That sounds like a band that should right. be thinking of like local H or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So but anyways, that band had some some record deal offers. I had like a relationship. Actually, this is relevant with BMI from back then. BMI was like having us do their uh, like little showcases and things and So you were in a band in high school and you sent your music to BMI? Yeah. Okay. In San Francisco. Yes. So who are these labels that hear it? Uh, I mean, at that point, we we got an offer from Hollywood Records. I think it was Marshall Altman. Wow. He was at Hollywood. I had sent, I mean, if we want to take it all the way back to the very beginning, I had had a sick day my senior year in high school, and I had this old book that was like like your guide to the record industry, like updated with A&R, you know, mailing addresses and phone numbers. So I had this sick day, and I just started calling record labels. I just called record labels one by one, left them messages, and one of the people I called was um, Rob Cavallo. You just happened to call the head of Warner Records at the t- Or he well, wasn't head of Warner Records yet. He was He was somewhere else. Yeah. I think he he may have actually been at Hollywood. And you just call, cold-called like, hey, I'm Eric. I, I cold-called the office, uh-huh. and I spoke with his secretary who... I've been meaning for years to figure out who that was and send her flowers. I said, hey, Billy Joe Armstrong, who Rob had produced Dookie, the seminal Green Day record. I said, Billy Joe Armstrong's brother produced my band's album in his backyard. And can you tell Rob I want to send it to him? Rob called me back like at 5 p.m. that day. Hey, uh," and I'll never forget, he said... Tell me the names of some of your songs. And I, I listed off all the songs I could think of. Well, can you name one now? Oh my God. I mean they're they're too they're they're such good names. I don't know if the show could handle it. <laughs> Hit them with a brick. Sick. Yeah. Groove Very Heroes. Br- what is it? Groove Heroes. <laughs> we were the best band. We were the best band. Dude, that's a sick title. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So he heard those sick titles and said, Great. <laughs> He sent Marshall Altman, who is his A&R, up to see us uh, play. And that was enough for Marshall to tell uh, a friend of his named Scott Yamas, who is a Bay Area record producer and studio owner, hey, why don't you help this band out, produce some music for them, um, you know, sort of develop them a little bit. We want to keep an eye on them. Right. And... Scott ended up becoming the sort of studio producer and specifically Pro Tools guru that I came up under. Uh, I was producing all kinds of like local sort of Bay Area punk bands from the age of, you know, 17 to 20, 21. I would have bands come in on Saturday. I would, you know, record them edit the drums. This is on like Pro Tools 3 or something. It's a long, long time ago and just have to do this mega, mega tedious work. So you're you're doing this in high school? In high school. So you're recording local AM with Rob Cavallo's brother. No, No, Billy Joe Armstrong's brother. Billy Joe Armstrong's brother. brother. Right. Um, Marshall Altman comes in here as local AM, says, Mm -hmm. you're great. Mm -hmm. I'm going to bring your music back to Los Angeles. Yes. And then you end, but you're going, then you go to school at 
UC Berkeley? Like, I mean, how does this all? Oh boy, shake the, down? the 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 short version is that we we do some records with Scott Yamas, this Bay Area producer yeah. who's who's great, um, and we end up getting a couple of offers that we are advised to turn down from our then manager and lawyer. Were the, um, was that a good idea? Yes, but they also ended up being the things that sort of broke the band in half. Um, because here's a record deal and you just turned it down kind right, of thing? Yeah. Right. And that on the back of that, I started what would be this sort of prog hard rock band called Facing New York. Yeah. Who proceeded to do the kind of um, like touring circuit? We toured Europe and Japan and the States a bunch of times. And uh, did you have a deal with that? No, that was fully. Well, how do you go and tour all this? Who's funding that? I mean, we we were all working. We were just in the Bay Area. Like we all had jobs, and, and you all made it a priority equally. Right, right. And that was when my folks approached me. So I, I had started school and then I had taken time off because, you know, when we got the deal offers for my old band, it fell through. I was pissed off. I started the hard rock band. A lot of decisions in my life come from times of anger and they end up usually being the right decisions, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so I was, I went back to school because things were just hard. I was like working at an architecture firm as a, just sort of a clerk and kind of like rehearsing every night and, and the tours were really brutal. And that's when my folks were like, you know, you should go back to Berkeley. And I was like, cool, I will. And I'll major in music. And then that changed everything for me. Right. Um, wallpaper starts at that time. I start playing house shows, like house parties, just started it kind of as a satire but really, also, I wanted to play parties. I wanted to, like, meet girls. I wanted to have a band that wasn't um, so... I don't know. I wanted to have a band that girls liked. There you know what I mean? <laughs> well, yeah, because... So, Reagan Baby is my first record deal. Is, right. and And we went and, and played that, but it was all political. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, man. I, I mean, I got a record deal. All my friends are actors in young Hollywood. Mm -hmm. We're just going to go and just pick up girls and the whole right. thing. I just thought this was perfect for me. Right. And we started playing, and our fan base were people who were really political uh -huh. and who were like, mm, there are probably things I just probably shouldn't say on this, but there were the fan base was not exactly the fan base that I thought that would, right. would come to to a guy who just got a record deal, right. and it was they they took the content and they believed in the content, which yeah. is really the goal, right? But the the all those other things I missed out. It wasn't until my next band that yeah. you know when Glacier Hiking started playing, we we started getting a girl fan base. I was like. Oh, that's what it's like to be a frontman of a band, you right. know. And it was like right. a different thing. It's a when you're writing music for your bros, you're gonna get that. Yeah, your audience. bros are coming to your shows. And if you're gonna write, it, it. right? It's just what it is. Yeah. And it's a whole fan base of bros. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. just a bit. Exactly. Anyway, so I can relate to that. Right. So so wallpaper like emerges from this time, and wallpaper is immediately met with more open doors than anything I had done before. Yeah. Um. It still has a satirical edge, uh, but we scoop up our first indie deal pretty easily. Yeah. Um, and, you know, from there, it's... Is that when you met Steve? 
You're oh, yes. So yes. did he help? It, when did you meet him, and how did he open up the doors for wallpaper? Um, Steve was the first person. Last name's Brodsky, right? Right. Yeah. Steve okay. Brodsky, uh, the late and great, was the first person that ever looked me dead in my eye and said, "I know you're playing this off like it's a joke, but you could make real pop." rap r&b records yeah like you could you could actually do this like there's there's a layer of irony and satire that you're almost hiding behind but when you want to strip that away like you could really do this he was the first person that ever said that to me and even though it took several years of our relationship to even start really approaching that like he planted that seed in me, you know. Yeah, I. It's strange how there's. Do you know the hero's journey? It's like oh, a, oh the the concept of the yeah, hero's journey. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. all those like sort of uh, Yodas and you know that that show up in your life and mm-hmm. are like you have the power. Yeah, you know, and you're like I do. Right. And like really? Are you sure I have the power? And you you go and and it's then those people who are like no, don't take that record deal, don't do this, and all the people who try to like not pull you down, but they're they're adding weight to that, and then you have those mm. sort of angels and those heroes that come in and say, nah, you got a shot. Right. You know, you need those people. So you do. It's amazing. So then he sends wallpaper that music to BMI to Casey or how does what's the how do you end up from wallpaper cuz then i get this email from the mm-hmm. A&R girl that says all these things about you right. so at some point this is where that i assume where that passes right we're now in like late 2000 yeah at this point we're probably in about 2009 or so so like i said wallpaper has become a force in the bay area music scene but i'm washing dishes and I'm thinking about what Steve is saying. Steve is still my manager. I'm thinking about all that, finally taking it seriously. You know, maybe I should maybe I should expand and diversify what I'm doing a little bit because I'm broke. Like, yeah. I'm broke, broke. Um, so Where were you living? At that point, I was living um, just off the panhandle in San Francisco. Um, were you living with roommates? Were you on your own? Yeah, roommates. We had a house. Uh, we had a house that had been rent controlled for like 10 years. So I was living in the panhandle with my own room paying like, you know, 400 bucks or something. Yeah. I mean, even then it was insanely cheap. How were you recording music at that point? Scott Yamas, that first guy that I mentioned, that Marshall Altman from Hollywood had told me or had told to give me a shot. That same angel (laughs) was letting me use a space at night. I would literally bike from the panhandle over the hill up to um, sort of North Beach area and take the bus from there up into Marin. And I would just, I would bus up at like 7 p.m. and I'd come back at 6 a.m. the next day. I was doing that three or four nights a week. And then the next day you show up to the Gap headquarters to and you just do the and dishes. Just, and scrape scrape old eggs off plates with my fingernails. I mean, like... It was brutal. <laughs> so shocking. Um, Sorry. <laughs> graphic, graphic content. No, no, I like it. I know exactly. Not safe for work. Yeah. Not safe for work. Um, you now have this music, and, and we're back in 2009. Right. So 
so like I said, Wallpaper been playing shows. We we were getting out. We were touring a little bit, and through playing um, various shows in L.A., I met a guy named um, Jacob Cooper. Goes also goes by Jacob Safari. Talented uh, visual artist. He was drumming for a band now, the May She. I think they were called. Uh, good friend of mine, and we did a song together. And he had told me, like, oh, yeah, if I give this to my people at BMI, they can help with this or that. Yeah. I was like, BMI? They, I was, yeah, I used to, like, talk to them. I knew, like, Tracy Verlindi and, and Miles back in 2002 or whatever. Yeah. I was like, who's your guy there? Can you give me his number? He's like, well, he's not my guy, but you, I, I'll give you his number. Um, I was like, cool. So, again, cold calling, like, story of my life. I cold call this number. Hey, uh, this is this is Casey BMI. I was like, "Hi, uh, Casey. Yeah, um, I got your number from this guy Jacob. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to write pop and rap and beats. You know, like and he's like, okay, yeah. Send me. Do you have like music I could hear? I was like, yeah. He's like, send me twelve CDs of your band. I was like, cool. And then that was it. Phone that's calls. crazy. That's that's the beginning of it. Is that like is that your first time co-writing for something, or were you co? When all these bands were you co-writing? Like was that foreign to you to go and have a yes. co-writing session in San Francisco where there's not a huge pop scene? Why oh, were you yeah. writing with this guy? We, I mean, it wasn't even thought of in that way. It was, it was more like, um, thought of like artists collaborating, like in the sort of like remix feature, et cetera, world. Because Wallpaper had been doing a lot of remixes. It was partially how I got that project on the map, um, one of which was this song I did with Jacob. Uh, but at that point, I had also done the Das Racist record, um, the Pizza Hut, combination Pizza Hut Taco Bell remix. It's which, so good, and, <laughs> which is still great. <laughs> Thank you. Uh. Which ended up like sort of moving mountains for me, which I never expected. I, I heard that song in a hotel room hanging out with Girl Party and Dan Deacon in Las Vegas, and they said, you got to hear this song. And I flipped out. I was like, this is a hit. It's like yeah. some kind of magic magic hit record and like had to, had to play with it, you know? Um, but ended up, that ended up being one of the things also that this Casey character from BMI heard. Yeah. And uh, he called me about a month later, and he was like, um, you know, I, there's an A&R from this label. Um, his name is Mike Karen. He's going to reach out to you. He wants you to come down and work with one of his producers. You know, they've been doing, this producer has some stuff with, like, Lil Wayne. And my brain is immediately like, I'm going down to write with Little Lil Wayne. Wayne. Yeah. We're going to be in the room. Yeah. And I'm going to meet him and be with all his boys. I told my mom, I'm going to go work with Lil Wayne. And I was, like, so stoked. Like, I didn't understand it at all. The process of pitching or... I mean, any of it. No, and, and Mike Karen being the, I think I call him the Kevin Bacon of the music industry. You know, it's like <laughs> the guy, the guy changed half of our lives. Like we yeah. all, we all meet the first time or we all have our first like real cuts together because someone like that, you know, just mm -hmm. doesn't care about what your name is. He just cares if he finds a hit song and right. hit writers. And the fact is, is that he's the guy who's looking up who did this 
Pizza Hut, Taco Bell mm-hmm. record, mm-hmm. you know, and he's the one who's finding an assistant to go and and contact that. Right, right. Were you more um, were you more creative when you were broke, or were you differently creative? Like, because sometimes mm-hmm. when people are really successful, they have yeah. they have trouble being creative, or sometimes when they're really broke, they have trouble being creative. Sometimes they don't have trouble right. at all. But right, um, I I have. A couple different ways I can get to that place where I feel truly, like, creative without precedent. Like, um, creative where the ideas are wholly new. And there definitely is, like, the the struggle creative, which I was at that time. Yeah. I mean, like, all of Wallpaper's breakout songs that sort of, like, fueled our journey were written, like... You know, in, in small studio closets with no AC, right? Low on money, um, charged up on cheap fast food, like really yeah. str- struggle creative, you yeah. know. But um, also, you have like where I feel now, where I feel like the sort of liberated creative, where it's like I'm not struggling, so I try to channel the fact that the, the sort of like. The what have you got let's to take, lose? Let's take risks. No. Right. Uh. Because, and that's the funny thing, the what have you got to lose is the common factor. Right. You know, when you're broke, what have you got to lose? Right. When you're, like, comfortable, what do you got to lose? Yeah, right. Like, that's the right. place you want to get to, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so you come down to L.A. and you're writing not with Lil Wayne. <laughs> When you're in that studio, are you sitting there being like, "Okay, I'm not with Little Wayne. Oh. <laughs> what am I doing with my life?" Or were you sitting here being, like, "This is the coolest thing to be in a studio like this because there's no way you were spending that much time in in nice studios in San Francisco, even oh, with yeah. record deals or be, you know, you weren't in the rooms that you were in in LA immediately." No, it, it was it was a a totally surreal and different kind of experience. Um you know, my first session was so it was with this producer Kane Beats, uh, yeah. who's awesome. He had recent. I think he was coming off Bedrock, the Young Money sort of posse cut with like Tyga, Nicki, and Wayne and Drake even. Yeah. So, um, you know, it was it was great. Like it was not a very productive session, but like he like poured me like a, my first glass of Hennessy, which was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. and, like we. Kind of yeah. stayed up all night getting fucked up, and I don't just had a lot of fun. It was like me, him, and a couple other guys, and we were up till about five in the morning. I was like, "This is crazy. This is how yeah, this pop is how, songs are this made. Is how hit records are made." Yeah, sure. like yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm into it, and I'll never forget because I had to go back up uh, pretty early the next day. I did an eight a.m. breakfast meeting with Katie Welly, actually. Yeah, meeting her for the first time, and. Um, Katie Welly is now in our yes RCA RCA who I think yeah. at the time was uh, publishing I forget where oh that's right Sony that's right um yeah, yeah but you know so our finished our our session finished up at like five six a.m. I crawled out into my Hyundai rental car and slept as the sun was coming up just sweaty and you know sort of off gassing alcohol yeah. And then you woke must have up. smelled like shit. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> I'm Hennessy sure. and no sleep, and in a room where you yeah. were still allowed to smoke weed in those rooms. Oh yeah, you know what I mean? no, before my they made were yeah, before reeking. they said we couldn't. Yeah. Like that, those rooms were like 
Yeah, exactly. exactly. So like, so getting <laughs> about awesome. an hour and a half, two hours to straighten up, and then going and meeting her, you know, just like a total mess. I mean, that's that's the level I was operating at for the better part of my first sort of two years down here. Uh, how were you getting back and forth? And when you were getting back and forth, I mean, the cost of gas and the cost of like. I don't mean to keep bringing up money because it's not about money, but when you're broke, it is. It is. And it's like prioritizing, okay, well, I got to work X amount in order to, you know, work. And we we meet sometime around this. So I know we were going through the same thing. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is that classic thing where, so I, I was usually renting rental cars. That was like just a little bit cheaper than flying. Uh huh. So I was doing that. Um, and I remember conversations with my, parents or with my then at the time girlfriend like like you know so they they pay you right like they pay you like you're coming down all the way down and you're doing them a service or trying to write a song so you must get paid for this it's like no 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 (laughs) they're like well you know and then a year into it like is this does this still make sense and then that's when i was like well um i'm gonna move down like, I, I think I need to leave the Bay Area right? and move to L.A. And again, the, you know, the sort of guardian angel, Steve Brodsky, he was like, still my manager at that point, he was like, you have to do this. If you want, if you want people to take you seriously, you can't be like, oh, but I'll be, I'll be in L.A. in, uh, in uh, three weeks, so wait till then, please. Right. You just got to be, be available. in the mix. Yeah. Yeah, but it was it was rough because I didn't have a car. Of course, I couldn't afford a car. So um, while Wallpaper's on tour, uh, my dad or right before leaving for tour, my dad and I we we broke down my bike and we bought this like custom uh, bike shipping box, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I guess they have. I didn't know till then. And we broke down my bike, and I left for tour with a big like camping backpack. Yeah, you know, like those kind of ones that go from your head down to your like your butt kind of. Sure. And um, I brought that on tour with me. And then after the last day of the tour, I remember it was Washington, D.C., I flew back to L.A. My bike was there waiting for me. Cool. Um, And that was the beginning of my life down here. And it was a whole year with camping backpack, bike, no car, you know, buses, public transit, couches, it was a crazy where you, first year. Where were you staying when you were here? Um, my I Echo Park, right? I, exactly. Funny enough, um, my I'd played a show in L.A. maybe six months before I moved down. It was at uh, what is now the Satellite, oh, yeah. formerly Spaceland. Right, Spaceland. Yeah. yeah. Played a headlining show. It was great. And um, there was a couple guys that had come out that I had recognized but didn't know exactly from where. And uh, they were outside smoking cigarettes, and I was talking to them, and they were like, you know, like we got a, we we actually have a room like in our house opening up. It's like five hundred bucks. It's kind of like it's hot. It's a hot room, which I didn't know what that <laughs> meant. <laughs> you know, when you're broke and there's stuff like that, it's a hot room, or yeah, it's like, a loud room, yeah. or it's kind of a leaky room. Right. Like, right. like, no, well, I mean, I'll try it. I'll right. try a hot room. Um. So I moved in there. It was on. Uh, Alvarado down by the 101. Yeah. Like, you know, a street that would have huge semi trucks 
and all kinds of you know it felt like they were like landing planes on that street yeah, in the right. of it. It was, just, was it a hot room it was <laughs> blazing it actually had wood panels on the walls that l- resembled that of like being in a sauna yeah. like it looked like <laughs> yeah, a sauna yeah it was it was formerly a sauna basically yeah, yeah i'm sure right, right i'm sure but um those guys that took me in uh were Brad Herring who's now a um now a employee of Nice Life. That's really cool. And Ethan Shoemaker, who's now my engineer. Yeah. Those are like the first two guys to, uh, the first two guys to like give me a place to live down here. That's and amazing. Like we're, we're still, I mean, I, one of the first, together. one of the things you said in, uh, when we tried this the last time was you were talking about how you would take the bus to my, because we started working around mm-hmm. that and that you would take the bus from Echo Park to West Hollywood. So we could write in my condo that I was foreclosing on oh because I couldn't make any, I couldn't make any payments anymore. Mm-hmm. And the fact that like we would sit on my my bed in my room, which was also the 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 seat for working on the computer. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like, you know, it's just funny right. to see like, oh yeah, that's it couldn't be more real than that, you know. Then then you're like, well, either when you say that we've got nothing to lose, it's like. I mean, I already am. I'm already late on this payment. I can't afford it, and it's like I don't have a car. I'm gonna just get over here, and you know, it yeah. must have taken you an hour to take a bus to my place, dude. At least, dude, for real. I mean, like there was. I was doing sessions in Santa Monica, and the, the you have to take the two or the seven o two to get to Santa Monica. The seven o two is the express, but like if you couldn't catch a seven o two and you took the regular. Crosstown two bus. Yeah, that w- that was a longer bus ride than it took to fly from San Francisco to L.A. Yeah, that's an 80, 90 minute yeah. bus ride, yeah. which was so annoying at the time. But I did. I get so many ideas on sure. those rides. You know, I know you want to. The cliches are all real as far as you know. When you have that kind of struggle, you're you're around real people, mm-hmm. you know, who are not talking about the music industry all the time. Right. We're not doing the same race. A friend of mine went up to Santa Barbara last week, mm-hmm. and um, he was talking about on his way down, he, he stopped in Ventura for for lunch, and the lady was like, you want a hamburger? And he's like, yeah, I guess so. I mean, usually you order a salad in, in L.A., you know? Yeah, right, He's like, right. do you want a beer? And he goes, okay. And he, you know, and he was sitting there, and he's like, it's so weird to eat lunch around people who aren't trying to be the best songwriter in the world. Right, you know, and and you or get people who aren't tr- who aren't concerned, like so hyper concerned with like how I don't know how like how they present themselves and how they hold themselves up. Like, yeah, it's, the image know. is gone. Like, it's not about just self image all the time. Right, you you forget about that. It, it can be, it is like a sort of. Uh, you know, secretly exhausting practice yeah. and part of being in L.A. Is that why you have... Okay, so when is when is Ricky Reed born? And I mean that in a sense that you have, you know, there are people who call you Eric, there are people who call you Ricky, there are people who call you Wallpaper, and all of those are really kind of pseudonyms. If you know you, they're all the same person. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, it seems like people have, like, their alter egos. Right. And is it that time that something like, I'm now Ricky Reed, I am now, you know, when, how does this, how how does that correlate with everything? Well, that takes 
uh, a little step back in time, not too far, but when I started Wallpaper, I I started Ricky Reed. Right. 2007. When, when making pop music to me was, I don't know what it was, uncool or something. You know, I, I'm coming straight out of a music degree from a, a fairly a good but also a fairly snobby music program. I don't want to just be a pop guy, but in my heart, I love pop music. Yeah. So to do that, I gave myself a pseudonym, which was Ricky Reed, who would be the singer of Wallpaper. Right. And and sort of invented this whole satire, right. this satirical character. So the question actually becomes, when do these sort of different shades of my personality just become one thing right that's a little bit further down the line i think we'll get there in a minute okay because that's that's so more we'll recent. revisit that yeah um what's next in the story is it wall is it getting the record deal we're in now 2010 2011 mm-hmm. we're all just starting to talk about getting cuts and you and i probably at that point just written our first cut together right, right. or pretty yeah. close when we got CeeLo anyway yeah, yeah. so um we're kind of like on this strange trajectory where you're working at, uh, I forgot the name of it. What's the studio? Oh, the... At Bed, uh, Black Iris's old studio in Bedrock in Echo Park. Right. So you're working um, on doing commercial music, mm-hmm. and that's your day job. Right. right. Exactly. That's how I was surviving down here while doing, while trying to succeed both as a writer, producer, and as wallpaper. Right. So I was working in the, in sort of a hot little room. My life is just all hot rooms. <laughs> I'm working in a hot little I'll room. I'll buy you a fan. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, in, in Bedrock Studios, which for people who don't know, is really like a rock band rehearsal building. All right. So like when you're working in a studio trying to cut vocals and things, like you have... You might have like three metal bands on each side of you sharing the walls. So you have you don't just have like one guy like banging on a double kick drum. Yeah, you might have right. three guys. Yeah. It's just chaos. Sick. <laughs> and that's where I made the the wallpaper song Stupid Fasted in this middle of this sort of like, you know, still broke, only in LA, disconnected from most of the people I care about, surrounded by you know, fucking metal bands in Echo Park. It was just a crazy time and still having no success. Um, so I made that song and it was shortly after making that song, you know, we put a video out, it starts getting attention. There's We get some love from MTV. And then that's when I get the call to come to the Sony building because... This producer, Tricky Stewart, is now working at Epic Records. Tricky had stopped my, at that time, publisher, Larry Wade. Had stopped Larry in the hallway and said, you work with that wallpaper kid, right? Like you and Evan, Evan Bogart, um, who also, just to say real quick, was another one of the angels in in this whole trajectory. Yeah. you guys work with that wallpaper kid. I heard that song "Stupid Faced." I need to, I need him to get in here and meet L.A. tonight. 
L.A. Reed. Yeah. Um, he was at X Factor rehearsals. So they were waiting for him to come in. They wouldn't let Larry leave Epic. They kept him there from like 4 p.m. Uh-huh. until I finally showed up, which was close to 11 p.m. Because I was at this point, man, I was like so just getting sick and tired of like having people blow smoke up my ass in the Dude, music industry. Out of control, right. Yeah, like at this point, I've been trying to do it for like eight years, nine years, I don't know. And so when I'm out on a date with my then girlfriend and and – Larry hits me up like you need to get to the epic offices now. I'm like, fuck off, you know. Like I'll I'll come in on Monday. Yeah, I'll come in on Monday. Right. Like it's not that urgent. No, he's like, no, they're keeping me here. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you, know? you, you don't understand, right? And also, like, you don't know L.A. Reed. <laughs> Trust me. Yeah. Get here. He pushed and pushed and pushed. So I brought my girlfriend. We were living at this point in Silver Lake. Uh huh. We were on a date in Santa Monica. I drove her Santa Monica to Silver Lake. If you don't know, that's about 45 minutes-ish, maybe more. Right, or two hours if you take yeah. the bus. Right, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. right. Um, and, and at this point, I've, I've been able to buy myself a Prius. Nice. Off a, off a small publishing deal, which is cool. great. So I drop her off, change, drive back out. I get to the uh, Sony Epic building, yeah, 10, 11 at night or whatever. It's L.A. Reed who for some reason is hanging, just hanging with Sierra, just Sierra's there randomly. Right. You got L.A., Sierra, Tricky Stewart, Larry, you know, my publisher, and me. And it's, you know, it's after hours. It's all shut off and dark and everything, and they walk me into a big audition rehearsal stage room. It's almost like a screening room, like a small yeah. theater. And there's a piano on stage, and L.A.'s like, you know, can you play a song? And... Oh, I was so nervous. I've never, ever, ever been more nervous. Can you imagine that? It's no. A, this, this theater holds like 400 people, and you have L.A. Sierra and Tricky just sitting there in the front row just looking at you like, sing us a song. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I mean, it's nuts. <laughs> I, have a one, I have one L.A. Reid story that happened recently. I don't know if I told you this or not. Uh-uh. But um, I was in, I was meeting with Chris Anacute, works with them now, and yeah. we were talking about uh, music and different artists that they have. And he walks and he peeks his head in and he goes, um, and he's like, Chris, I need you to come here. L- L.A. does. And, and Chris like, no, you should come in here to L.A. 
because you should meet Ross. I had never met him. And he comes in and he goes, um, and Chris says, you should meet him. He's a, he's a hit songwriter. And, and, and he says, okay, well, what has he written? And he goes, um, Dangerous Woman. He goes, I didn't like that song. What else did he write? <laughs> and he goes, he goes, he goes, he said, he said, my house. And he goes, okay, all right. So he sits down and he goes, if you're such a hit songwriter, play me a song. So I played him Hopeless Romantic, which is on Megan Trainer's yeah, album, yeah. that wasn't a single, uh-huh. but to me is a hit song. Amazing song. And it was like, it was a really good moment for me to be like, rather than playing him some new song, being like, yo, this should be Fifth Harmony's next single, or yeah, Camilla's yeah. going to love this record. Right. I was like, I'm going to play you a song that you already have that you never released. Mm-hmm. And it was like this really cool moment of, we sat there the whole song and goes, wow. It's a hit song. And then that was it. And then he left. And oh, I was like, man. he's like, we talked about that song for a while, but it was like a really interesting moment. I was like, it was super like LA, Raleigh Reed, Los Angeles kind of like. Yeah. He's like, he put, he does this to writers and to artists where you better bring in your A game right. from the beginning. It's like, he, he's, I don't know if he tests everybody mm-hmm. or if it's just, but I imagine that our stories are similar where he comes in, he's like, yo, play me the song. Yeah. What song did you did you play? I the only thing I really knew how to play and sing comfortably on piano was a ridiculous sort of lounge jazz version of the song Stupid Faced. Oh, cool. It sort of has like a Roy Ayers, you know, everybody loves the sunshine. I don't know. It's almost like like a psychedelic jazz version of this yeah. like knucklehead party song. And it I like engaged them we were doing call and response and stuff and it was great it was really great we went up to his office and we just drank tequila and played other songs of mine that he hadn't heard that he loved and talked about michael jackson and quincy jones and fela cootie and jazz and miles davis and just talked and talked and talked until late in the in the night and then finally he was like okay i'm gonna go um he's like tricky you know, he made this motion with his hands, like kind of wrap wrap this up. Yeah, and I didn't know if it was like wrap up the meeting, yeah, right? Or like this human, yeah, right. <laughs> wrap up this human. Um, and uh, that was a Friday night, and lawyers negotiated all day Saturday, and Sunday I was in uh, Bedrock um, Studios. Producing a band called A B and the C, featuring your engineer Joe. What? Yeah, ah, this is fantastic. Yeah. I just turned to my right and looked at Joe because <laughs> yeah. he's sitting right there. I was in the <laughs> studio with with Joe's band, producing them in Echo Park, who Steve Brodsky was also managing, and uh, and yeah, my uh, my like publisher, production company people, like they their assistant brought this massive binder with papers and I signed it. So I met LA Friday night. Yeah. After the end of business hours and over the course of the weekend before the start of the next week the deal was finished. I mean it was 48 hours. I mean this was what they t- they tell you it's like if if they want you, if somebody wants an artist or somebody wants a song, right. it goes really quick. Right. The deals tend to go quick. And, and the ones that are really slow and you're battling over some things for a long period of time, 
it, it's a different kind of deal. It's not to say that it's not it's not good, but when you have that kind of excitement, mm-hmm. you know, that's something that that's probably a good partnership to have in your life. You know, right. you want people to be excited enough there, but we'll we'll put the money out there right now. Yep. And yep. we're happy whatever it doesn't matter what it costs, let's just get this done. Right. That's you know? part of why I love him. I mean, he's one of the last, you know, great record guys that has conviction. Uh-huh. And if he thinks something is great and no one else does, he'll, you know, he'll put his money where his mouth is. Um, and if he doesn't like something and everyone else fucks with it, it's a number one song. He's like, I don't, you know. I didn't like the song. I, I don't like yeah, the song. Yeah. Well, like, that's, 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 that, that was funny. He's oh, like, right. yeah. And he's like, Danielson, I didn't really like that one. What else do you write? It's like, <laughs> what the fuck, bro? I spent a month on that chorus. <laughs> like, totally. um, when you're finding out, when you have to sign these papers and you're in the middle of producing, mm-hmm. and I imagine your life is like this now, where when, because songwriters are working on so many songs at, at one time and so many different productions, or they're finished but they're out in the world, and you get you get weird news in the middle of the day. Yeah. You get sometimes really good news, sometimes not so good news. But when you get that, does it affect your what's in front of you? When you're getting it, when you know that you had this crazy meeting with L.A. Reid and Sierra's there, and like, mm-hmm. and all these weird things, and then you're having having to go in and do a production on a on a band that doesn't have a deal at the time. No offense, Joe. Yeah. But you know, when you do that, how do you focus in that moment? Are Are you able to do that, or are you sitting there being like, okay, my mind is in twenty different places? I mean, that's. That's part that might be the biggest part of of the job of what we do is like you have to be able to put that in a box somewhere else, yeah, you know, I can't stand working with people who are like focused on everything else that's going on in their lives. It's like we all got a lot going on, but you have to be able to put all that aside, be it good or bad, and um really stay present. Yeah. You know, and and I think that like staying extremely present and really emotionally connected to the people you're in the room with is the only way to make great art hit single or not. Right. You know what I mean? So when you're okay, you sign a deal as wallpaper, you have a publishing deal, you know, it's like all the place all the pieces are there. Yeah. Um why and how are you doing, you know, when how are you balancing, like you were saying, you're staying present, but you're, at the time, you're starting to produce songs, like, you know, I assume Talk Dirty's a little bit after that. That's still, like, a couple years after the the deal, I assume. But you're starting to get, you know, bigger bigger opportunities to produce, and you're trying to do the band, and you're trying to release music. Right. Um, what, what were you choosing to focus on um, at the time, and... and I don't know. How does that affect how you write now? Boy, I mean, it was it was really validating. It was really important getting the record deal from Epic. If for nothing else than to show me that my taste and my instincts are valid and appreciated and good. Love that. Because... I was trying to write pop songs. You know, I was in L.A. and doing sessions. Um, 
And, I, you know, I, I would go into a room and be like, okay, today we're going to try to write for Kelly Clarkson. Today I want to try to write for Usher or whatever it was. And, like, trying to do them but only, like, a less good, inauthentic version of these things. You know what I mean? I was, yeah. like, I was chasing different sounds and different styles and being like, I can, I can emulate that pretty well. But getting a record deal off of a song that I made when I was struggling with nothing to lose and being like, wow, yeah. people respond to this, that opened up my, I mean, that opened up my whole situation. When I started working on my debut album for Epic, I was a lot more liberated. Um, but I still then had the pressure of, okay, this is my shot. This is my shot. I need a big song. I really need a big song. So I had that constricting me at the same time. So what happens in the middle of all this, I'm making the album. Um, this is actually where things start to get really, really interesting. Okay. So it is the, it's winter of 2013 at this point. Um. The relationship I'm in at that time I, I, that I had been in for a while, um, she she's a great, really great woman, uh, but we're kind of getting to our last straw. Like yeah. my lifestyle is so unpredictable. My schedule's terrible. I'm yeah. gone nights. I tour. Yeah, you know, she moved down to L.A. for me, and I'm just like not doing my part. Right. You know what I mean. Um, so the relationship is sort of in a tough spot. Um, and that's when I took my dog for a walk on a Sunday. We have a, a, a dog together. Took my dog for a walk on a Sunday at like 11 a.m. And then I come home to our apartment being broken into. Right. I like walked in the front door as... I see, I see a silhouette through the kitchen window, and I'm like, oh, this must be like a landscape guy. And I was like, well, it's Sunday. And then I look over and see this landscape guy <laughs> reach up and grab those like metal bars that are on windows in L.A. a lot, yeah. those like classic like, you yeah. know. Um, just pulls it out of the wall, which first of all is like, okay, so those don't do anything. Right. <laughs> Rips yeah. it out of the rotten sheetrock wall. Yeah opens the window and proceeds to just swan dive into our kitchen sink. Doesn't see me. As soon as I see him come through the window, I already have the leash off the dog, so I grab the dog by the collar and very quietly get out the front door, down the steps, as I hear him crashing into our glasses and and plates, right. dirty dishes in the sink, you know. And um, I called 911, and God bless the LAPD. They had... A chopper overhead, I swear to God, in about two minutes. Amazing. About six patrol cars pull up. They run inside, guns drawn, and they actually caught him still in the house. They brought him out into the street. I had to ID him. Later had to go to court, testify, which was really sad because he was clearly an older drug addict, you know, transient dude. Yeah. Um, but Did that affect <clears> – <throat> I mean, obviously, that's those are kind of life-changing moments – Right. How did that affect your, you know, it, it, does it affect your career in any way? Or is it, is that the straw that breaks the relationship? I mean, what do you, what happens when you 
have a moment like that. I mean, he was another one of the angels. You know? Really? He he was the catalyst that starts the craziest year of my whole life. Because that ends up, yes, being the straw that breaks the camel's back as far as the relationship goes. So then I First of all, is he, in, is he in prison? Do you know if he's I don't convicted? Know. I don't know. It'd be know. really interesting if you found that out, because my guess is that if you sent him a letter and said, "This that started the greatest year of my life. Yeah. You know, like, I wonder if there's, like, some weird connection there that's, like, there's a, a friend, uh, not, I want to go into your story, but a, a friend of mine's, um, he was like, you want to get dinner with my priest and me? And I was like, okay. It was his childhood priest. And I was like, I've, no, I've never had dinner with a priest. So we're sitting there, and the, we were talking about the people who... These these people, the ones that are sort of darker along the path, yeah. that create. When you said earlier, like the people that you're angry with or something, those are the ones that inspire you, right? And that at some point in your life, you have to acknowledge those people as equally important as the good ones. Mm. That they that at some point some they own some percentage of your success, and to be able to acknowledge that the people who cause such emotional <clears throat> destruction, right. Are sometimes the ones that you, you know, you owe the most to, and yeah. it's like it's important to recognize that. Yeah, that guy's an angel, that he destroyed so much. But if it wasn't for that, you know, well, we'll get to the future. But so many good things have happened because of that. So exactly. Anyway, continue on. Well, the thing is, it was about to get a lot worse before it got better, because coming immediately off of that, you know, I'm couch surfing in L.A. with my dog. Back to couch surfing, which is tough. The dog is getting more and more aggressive. And you no have routine. you have a record deal. You have a publishing deal. You're writing with name people, and then you're going back and staying on a couch. Right, right. I you have, know, I have my uh, the the engineer who was doing that album for me named Drew Kapner, who's still a great friend of mine. Um, he uh, and Margaret Margot. She's great. But the two engineers at the studio, Larrabee, where I was making my album, they would even babysit my dog while I had to go do meetings. Right. I mean, it was incredible because I had to bring the dog to the studio every day too. And that's when I lost one of my angels. My manager had been diagnosed with with a form of acute leukemia. This is Steve Brodsky. Um, On Christmas Eve, just before the start of... 2013 it only took uh, just about four three four months to kill him wow. it was the worst night of my life uh also joe called me and was the one who told me the news i was in new york in a hotel doing you know promo doing a promo tour for one of the wallpaper singles good for it which then sort of became the Steve Brodsky anthem. It was is a song about friendship and people bailing you out when you're down, and uh, so performing that song from then on was was always a challenge. Um, is he? Um, I don't know how you believe in these things or not, but how much do you th- think about him? On I mean, here we are. We're in this. Incredible studio. I mean, I, obviously, we've talked about how there's imported moss on the ceilings. You know, I mean, like going from from 
you know, when he met you to to now, I mean, how much do you think about him in this setting? Um, I mean, I think about him so often, and and more often than just a the the simple feeling of missing him, more often sort of a what would Brodsky do? Because he was, the way he conducted business, the way I understand it, was like um, like an Ahmet Erdogan type character. He was, everybody loved him. Ahmet he, was <clears throat> the founder of Atlantic, right? Right. Yeah. right. Um, everybody loved him. He He was able to get things done based on the goodwill every, that he had with everybody around him. Um, and he didn't hold grudges. Uh, you know, he wouldn't punish people that crossed him. He just had the best heart. And I, I call on that the most, like sort of looking to him for advice when I'm in a, in a, in a challenging situation. It's something amazing about how people live on is in, in a way is like I mean I was in a in a doctor's office yesterday and I just my grandmother was a doctor and I was like the first thing that I thought of you know when we're talking about it, it's like well you know my, my grandma used to say this and the way she would have treated this situation and they they become such a part of you in these conversations and it's like it's so present you don't right. really need to have the conversation with them yeah, you know that they're like they are having that conversation with you in a way. Right, exactly. They still are. So um, we're in 2013, and you're dealing with that loss. Right. So I'm, I'm still finishing up the the Wallpaper debut album. I was still doing sessions here and there, like outside of Wallpaper pop production songwriting sessions. Um, I did a session. Uh, over at I can't remember what it's called now the the old Coenga studio, the Atlantic, um, right. Mike, Mike's old building. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, it's the Edmonds building. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm doing a session over there. It was fine. Nothing to write home about. Um, and uh, I remember a young A and R, Miles Beard, um, comes in. And he's like, yeah, do you have any other beats to show me? And I played him some stuff. And he's like, dude, I was just on vacation in... Um, Israel. Yeah, in Tel Aviv. And I heard this song, like, in the clubs, and it is, like, killing it over there. Like, we've been trying to flip it, and nobody can get it right. And, you know, he played it for me, and I was like, oh, my God. Like, he's like, yeah, we think this is, like, a Missy, like, a smash for Missy. And I was like, dude, I mean, this... This sax part is crazy. Yeah. So please, yeah, let me tr- let me take a shot at it. So I went in back to Larrabee the next morning to work on my album. And I just got there like a few hours early, took the sample, um, chopped it up, kind of did a little bit of sound design stuff, like matched some of the sounds in the sample perfectly, cowbells and shakers and a, a neighing horse. <laughs> Sound. Naturally, yeah, yeah, as one does. Right? <laughs> um, was it you that sampled? Were you like, nay, <laughs> like Mr. Ed? I went to a farm in Ohio. Yeah, right. <laughs> it cost sure. ten thousand yeah. dollars. <laughs> right. No, I, 
I, I mated these two <laughs> these two horses because I was like, they're making a sound that's so natural. I just yeah, I got I, got, I had to get a zoology degree. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's right. take this back a few years. Yeah, right. So um, go back to Berkeley. I get my zoology degree. <laughs> I then start mating horses. I sample that. <laughs> and then so talk committed. dirty is a hit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Nay dirty. And it's like, no, we got to come more more human. Nay dirty. No, no, no. Talk dirty. <laughs> talk like a human. Mr. Ed. Um, so anyways, I, I flipped the sample. I just do it over a few hours. I sent it back to Miles. And he's like, this sounds sick. We'll send it off. And I was like, great. And it was a few months later that Evan Bogart um, one of the aforementioned angels hit me up. I was like, hey, I was in a session with, uh, he's in with Derulo or somebody else. But he's like, I heard that beat you made and Jason Derulo cut it. And I was like, Derulo? Like, riding solo? Like, same Jason Derulo? <laughs> yeah. He's like, yeah, yeah. It's It sounds crazy. Like, yeah. these writers, Sean Douglas and Jason Evigan, right. alumni of this show, um, yeah, they they wrote it with Derulo, and it's it's sounds amazing. I was like, cool, great, can't wait to hear it. Um, so finally, I got my hands on it. We finished it up, and then over the course of me being out, I you know I left for Warp Tour that summer, right? With Wallpaper, six no eight weeks long tour, crazy. It was like a baptism for me. Like I had been. Couch surfing with our dog. I had to rehome the dog. I'm out of a really long-term relationship. Um, I finished my album and released it on my birthday that summer on Warp Tour around all my Warp Tour friends. And I really, that was really where I started over, where things start to look up a little bit. Meanwhile, Talk Dirty is kind of being circulated in Australia. Yeah, it's a number one song everywhere in the world. Right. I mean, almost immediately, right? It was still it was still a little a little slow. I know it took a while here. For sure here. But it was like I just kept hearing these things like, you know, I then started my next tour in fall, which was with three oh three, um, who are now great dear friends of mine, Sean yeah. Foreman and Nat. Uh but I'm out on tour with them. Yeah, and I hear like, hey, like Talk Dirty is number one in Australia. I'm like, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. I have a number one in Australia. Like, first number yeah. one anywhere. Awesome. And um, as that tour goes on, it's like, it's kind of racing up the charts in Germany. And um, I'm like, that's okay, cool. In Europe, okay, great. Not a number one quite yet. Um, and then coming off of the 303 tour, I was in this headspace where I was like, I've been in a long-term relationship for five years. And I feel like the work stuff is just starting to click. I need like a few more years maybe of being single and just focusing on work. Because the best way to do the best work is to be single, which was my thought. 303 Tour wraps up in the middle of November and two nights after Thanksgiving, I met the love of my life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, changed, exactly. Completely right. changed my life. Um, and I think you could pretty much argue that that falling in love is 
as much as everyone thinks that being single is like, oh, then you're going to write about like authentically being in clubs. Like, no, you won't. You're going to be drunk in the club and you're going to not have any idea what you're talking about, <laughs> you know. But all totally. of a sudden you, you fall in love with somebody. And for you, I know it's fairly immediate, you know. It's immediate. like, oh, yeah, that's like uh, now I have a different purpose and like a whole other motivation. And it's like I'm going to make music to for a whole other thing. So anyway, right. so you you meet her and you actually meet her at a party, right? I did. Yeah, yeah we yeah, met yeah. at a party at um at Different Fur Studios in San Francisco, um, which is owned and operated by a brilliant producer and close friend Patrick Brown, who is almost sort of partners with Steve Brodsky back in the day in the Bay Area. <clears throat> so we met there through Patrick um, and Molly, his uh, his girlfriend. And it was so funny because trying to explain to Laura, my now wife, um, trying to explain what I do to her is like, she's like, okay, so after we met and before we had our first date, she was like, I I Googled wallpaper and like I saw videos, like you're a white rapper. (laughs) Like she thought, she thought that was like, you know, yeah, that's just what I do. I'm just a white rapper out here rapping end of story <laughs> and i was like well i but well, i make I, I mean i'm i, I studied music, music and i like i like I jazz do all this other, <laughs> exactly <laughs> babe i love jazz yeah i'm real <laughs> i need you to see me <laughs> um somehow jazz is the thing where it's like i i like jazz you're like oh okay maybe you're into music <laughs> yeah yeah um but it's it's Somewhere around there where I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, turn up the radio. I produced this song. Yeah. I made this song. She's like, wait, you, hold on. Like, this, who is this? It's like, this is Jason Derulo. Oh, and and then this is 2 Chains. (laughs) Right, right. And she's like, wait, so you like, you made this, made this. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is me. And she's like, is this normal? I was like, no, not, I mean, not yet, I guess. Right. And that was the beginning, January of 2014 is the beginning of Talk Dirty's ascent, you know, in the United States, radio and otherwise. And that's when everything starts to change. Yeah. I hit, we, you, you really want a record deal when you're younger because you think that's the end. And you think you want to tour because that's the end. And because you're touring to support an album and, you really want an album to sell something, and maybe they'll write about it in a magazine. But th- when you have a song that's traveling like that, and and you know that it's been number one in multiple countries, and it's number one in in the most m- music consuming country, and you you start seeing like, oh wow, this is affecting millions of people. It's in weddings. It's in bar mitzvahs. It's in in fraternities. It's in all of those things. You're like, holy shit, man. This song that I produced one day that, you know, I thought was going to be a Missy Elliott jam is now, like, at a party where I can introduce it to the girl of my life. And you're like, holy fuck, man, I, I can't escape this. This is this is no longer my music. This is, like, I'm part of, like, a zeitgeist. Right, right. You know? And then all of a sudden, every your name just blows up. Like, in the industry, it goes from, like, there's certain songs where you could have produced them and they could have been successful and no one would have asked who produced it. Yeah, right. But it was a, like a calling card of like, this is, a, this is left. This right. is left of center, but it's commercial. Right. But also, you know, 
for better or worse. Once we get, you know, once you have the hit, obviously it's a blessing because doors start opening. Yeah. You know, but the first doors that open are like, can you do another one exactly like that? And another, and another, and another. Right. Like, but I don't think you know. I mean, no fire, Fireball and Wiggle and some of these ones that are you know the celebration songs. Like they they were still they're all like these celebration songs, but they're not um, they're not the same. No, it's true. I mean, we we did have to turn down a lot of work and sessions to be really strategic in that time. Like, mm-hmm. how do we make sure this pigeonholing isn't permanent right um that's when we started chasing down the 21 pilots project yeah because my my team knew it and i knew it that i had been making rock records my whole life with my bands you know my very first experience is is producing bands as a 16 year old kid um so when we went to Atlantic and we said, please, oh, please, oh, please give us a shot, they were like, okay. I mean, um, God bless him, Pete Gambarg was like, like this makes enough sense where, where you can meet Tyler, you know, we can give you a couple days and see how it goes. And Tyler so every, Joseph, the singer right. from 21 Pilots, right? Yeah, singer, I mean, and just... Um, what's the word? Force of nature. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's a savant. He's he is. Like, he's obviously he's, he's out of control. His talents, obviously. Yeah, he's, he's next level. He's brilliant. The first the first day that I met him, we met on a, um at some mediocre uh, Greek restaurant on Melrose and had lunch. And I was just like, I came home to Laura. I was like. This that guy. was some mediocre food. Yeah. <laughs> but let me... I, mean, I came that was, home. That was the most mediocre falafel <laughs> right. in this town. <laughs> that said, yeah, this that guy's said, brilliant. Yeah. Uh, he... Yeah. yeah, I mean, he he's so special. And we... You know, but nonetheless, we... I, keep, I refer to myself as we a lot because I, I realize I need to, like, explain who the we is. Yeah. But, like, the... The team surrounding me is so important and so integral. I just get used to saying we when I'm talking about my managers and whatever. Anyways, um, yeah, but every inch of real estate on that album we had to claw for, you know? You get one song. This is great. Okay. You get one more song. Yeah. And then one more because... How many songs did you end up producing on it? I think it was eight. Yeah. You know, because the thing is, too, is that Tyler is writing hit songs right. with no help. Right. He's writing 100% hit songs by himself. So to be the producer that that gets the you know the opportunity to produce those songs is is, is kind of a gift. Like yeah. you know when he walks in and he's like I want to do this one today and you listen to it it's like uh thank you. Right. <laughs> like Thank you for you giving me the Do you remember him playing Ride for you and being oh, yeah. like, oh, I got it. Oh, I, yeah. Yeah. That, that was actually the very first one that he played for me um, after we had lunch. Yeah. was Ride. And that was the first song we did. I flew out to Columbus, Ohio, did two days with him. We just did Ride pretty much start to finish. 
I kind of think he still lives in his like the way the it feels like it feels like he still lives in his parents' house, right? And like and is still like the kid in high school that I I just was like I was in musical theater, so I feel like I would not have been able to hang out with that guy, but I would have been like, oh, I want to hang out with that guy. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? I mean, like <laughs> he, you know, I think the thing that we have in common and a thing that I really admire about him is like no matter where they are and what they're doing, like, they stand for the underdog. Sure. They stand for the outsider. Yeah. And I I have never stopped feeling like the outsider. And that's a big sort of indicator to how my brain works. Yeah. If I don't feel like an outsider, then, then I would just have nothing more to say and no more art to make, you know? Yeah, I was. I actually had written later, you know, because you do. Um, well, I didn't write it later. I wrote it earlier to discuss later, but um, just to clarify. Thank you, thank you. But but I did. I, I was going to ask that because you always choose. You choose projects. Um, when you choose them, you go all in on them, and they're. Um, they're off the beaten path, even when they're pop. I mean, you're, what you did with Megan Trainer is another example of like, here's Megan, but let's go in this direction with Megan. Let's go, let's go for it, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Um, Hell or High Water, let's go and do this kind of album with Megan. Right. Hell or High Water, let's do this album with, um, well, people we won't even mention yet because they'll come out, but like, <laughs> right. you know, but 20, 21 Pilots, mm-hmm. you know, some of these other people where you work with them and, and, and you go and you say, like, let's go in and do something. Right. Do you feel like that alienates you more? Or do you feel like that is like, um, that that's why people want to work with you? Or is it, can it be both? Oh, it's it's both for sure. I mean, that's a really good good way to put it because... When you're constantly, I don't know, when you're constantly like zeroing in on the unexpected and, I don't know, and then sort of burrowing in that, it can be an isolating process. You know, like um, we both came up as writers in the same community. We were talking about this just the other day. The same community of like amazing pop songwriters who are all friends who have known each other for a while and we do writing camps and have all these great personal experiences that often result in like big songs, you know? Um, And choosing to sort of nosedive into these left of center projects does take me out of that community sometimes. And that's, and you know, that's a sacrifice. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, to be able to, to you know, go from a Twenty One Pilots to Megan Trainer, to then you know, Fantagram or Bomba Stereo, like a band from Colombia that yeah. I met backstage at Lollapalooza, like those are the life experiences that I I crave. Yeah. You know. Okay, so you've released, and, and only a few more questions, but I know you. Um, you started releasing it with Joan of Arc, Express Myself, Be the One. You're starting to release singles again, as, right. but this time not as Wallpaper, but as Ricky Reed. Right. This former singer of Wallpaper. The artist formerly known as. Yeah. Um, is this part of an album that's coming out, or is this more like right now you want to release singles 
to do it or is it what is the what's the purpose well when i fell in love with laura um you know the thing that we hadn't talked about here is that after the wallpaper album on epic in 2013 that mm-hmm. sort of just didn't do anything you know i then went on a a role of having like success for three years of producing and writing for other people. And I was in love. I was like, this is good. Like I'm successful. I can be creative, you know, but also in the back of my head is sort of this nagging feeling like people don't care about what I have to say. People don't want to hear me sing. They want my beats and I can do that. And that's fine. But as I've gone through my relationship with her and fell more and more and more in love with her and sort of fell more and more in love with, uh, this is going to sound strange, but with myself and my confidence in myself um, as an artist. Yeah. I kind of got to the point where I was like, nah, fuck it. Like, I have a lot of shit that's in my head that I want to say. Um, and this has really just been the kind of beginning of that process, letting people know. I mean, the very first song um, was called Express Myself. And I feel like all of my songs are love letters in some way, shape, or form. Some of them are to Laura. But I had to start with a love letter to myself because, you know, as they say, like, if you don't love yourself, you can't love anyone else. Sure. So Express Myself was the beginning of that and Be the One and Joan of Arc starting to look at my relationship with her, where we've been, what we've been through over the last few years. And yeah, there's an album coming. There's a lot more music. Yeah, good. I love that. I mean, I texted you after Joan of Arc because I know we've gone through a lot of similar things and and I felt like that meant a lot to to me too. Happy you're, pu- you're putting out music again. Thank you. Um, all right, so what I've been doing is I've been listing five things, and I just want you to say the first thing that comes off the top of your oh, head. Wow. Okay. Um, this segment is called Five Things That You That I Say. And you na- <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't have a name yet. We'll figure it out. Okay. Um, <laughs> da, 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 da. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Tyler Joseph. Live show. Megan Trainer. So funny. Barbara Kane, the pres- one of the presidents of BMI. The matriarch. Love it. Start to infinity. It's Fireball. The, the yeah. drink. Okay, Al- cool. Start to infinity is the, the is his writing camp that includes Joe, John Ryan, Accident, uh, Tom and, and Tom Payton and L C Juber. Um Fantagram. Bass. Bass. Why yeah. bass? I just think of all the, my first thought goes to all the buzzing, crazy bass sounds on the album. Yeah. I mean, like, the it the the second and third and fourth and fifth thought are the emotional journey that we all went on through the making of that album and yeah. my friendship with Dan Wilson. Yeah. And all this beautiful, dark, Becky, the whole, I mean... Well, There's a lot, but the very first awesome. thing, my very, very first thing it's is bass. the bass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love it. I love the album, but I, I like that you wrote it a lot with Dan and obviously the band. But, I mean, to have Dan 
you know, Dan Wilson is one of the best writers in the world and he's so diverse. And I think by putting that random foursome together in a room, that's how you get that music. Yeah. It's really cool. Um, well, to close, you know, I mean, one of one of my favorite moments this year was when I was sitting in my seats at the Grammys and I see you and Laura um, and I see you guys sitting together about five rows away or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And it's just an amazing moment of, like, this is really real. That, like, we as a community are growing up and that um, the struggle's just worth it. It was just worth it. And I feel like I'm going through the struggle with you still and a lot of the life struggle stuff with you. Yeah. And um, I'm really fortunate to have you in my life as a friend and as a colleague. I know that Steve would be proud of you, and I know that you're going to be an excellent dad. Because I already know you're an excellent husband, but you're a good friend and you're a really good musician, and thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to Jeff Sparger, David Silberstein from Mega House Music, and Michael White. Here's a sneak peek of next week's And the Writer Is. I mean, the thing is, doing this or anything, yeah, the whole legacy thing. I mean, you, I just want to do good work. And, um, I mean, I hope my legacy is that I was a good husband and a good dad. Because at the end of the day, like, you want to do well in your career, but I'm, not, no, no amount of number ones or hit songs or dollars is going to fulfill that, you know, because it's a, it's a fleeting thing, so... Just getting to be part of it is really the win, you know? Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.